The scripture today comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. All right, good morning, everybody. All right, everybody doing all right? Staying cool out there? I guess it's nice to this morning, though. Okay, well, it's good to be with you. Uh, this summer, we're, as we, as you know, we've taken a little break from our normal routine of working our way through a book of the Bible, just kind of systematically, expositionally. Uh, and instead, we're, we're kind of pausing and uh, doing these one-off sermons where we're looking at just particular questions that people in the broader culture, perhaps outside of the church, people, questions that people have with regards to Christ, Christianity, the church, the Bible, in particular, we're looking at some of the really difficult questions that often serve as barriers or hindrances to people being willing to entrust their lives to Christ or to commit to, you know, being part of a church family or anything along those lines. 
Okay, so we, last week, Andrew uh, led us through looking through the difficult question of, you know, science in relation to the Bible, where we've looked at, you know, is Christianity just a straitjacket with all of its rules, or is it another failed institution? Okay, and this morning, uh, we're looking at this question, isn't, the, isn't Christianity transphobic? Or to put it another way, isn't the Christianity and Christians and the Bible, isn't that just bigoted towards people who would consider themselves transgender? And even if I take it even a little step back further from that question, really the broader question that's being raised in our culture, the question that we're going to engage this morning is, isn't Christianity just in general anti the LGBTQ community? That's the fundamental question. Last year when we were doing our questions over the summer, we looked more at the question of homosexuality and marriage issues and things like that. This this year we're looking at the question of of transgenderism and part of that T in that equation. And is is Christianity and the church and the Bible bigoted towards people who would consider themselves transgender? You know, and and here's the thing. um, I guess I've been around long enough now to to notice how some of the most fundamental questions and major barriers that exist in a culture, they change from generation to generation. Like maybe when in my generation, when I was growing up, maybe the, the major obstacle or the major challenge was more the scientific one that we looked at last week. Uh, maybe like then when the millennial generation came on, the scientific question wasn't so maybe so front and center. Maybe there was more the exclusivity of Christ and Christianity, or maybe the question of suffering. How does God allow suffering? But I think increasingly, if you ask, especially the younger generation, part of this generation Z or whatever, I know if you ask my kids, I asked them about this, you know, we were talking about these questions, they would say probably the fundamental issue that people has is it seems like, or their perception is that just Christians are bigoted towards people in the LGBTQ community. Right? Or they have this, whatever, this anti-posture there's people who would consider themselves transgender, right? And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look, evaluate that question, ask that question. Uh, is Christianity, is the church, is the Bible bigoted towards or anti or opposed towards transgender individuals? And if by chance, uh, terms are a little fuzzy here, when we say transgender, we're talking about people who have this, uh, this fundamental disconnect uh, between their inner sense of self and who they are, including their gender, and their outer external physical body, right? Where, where everything inside of them screams, I am this, and yet they look at their body and, and the body reflects something else of a different gender. Uh, maybe, you know, you think of like a, a little boy who grows up, and for whatever reason, for a whole host of potential reasons, just finds himself more into, more natural ad, more excited about things that might more commonly be associated with little girls, right? Whether it's the toys he plays with or the games that he's a part of or maybe even the dress that he decides to wear. And maybe as he's growing up, like you'll hear little comments along the way from maybe mom or dad or maybe from the church youth group that he's a part of or maybe his peers at school or whatever, that something just isn't quite right here. You know, maybe dad will be always trying to get him, you know, maybe getting to play sports, and it never takes. You know, or my dad trying to help me figure out how the innards of a, of a working of a car happens, and, I, and that never took, right, or whatever. And along the way, maybe dad just makes a quick comment, you know, sometimes, son, you're going to have to learn how to be like a man. And just, okay, tucks away, okay, something must not be quite right here, maybe. And then you get into the teenage years where 
you know, the body starts changing. He starts growing facial hair and starts, his voice drops. And so now all of a sudden, and, and that's very disturbing to him for some reason. And it's uncomfortable and he doesn't like it. And maybe there's a part of a repulsiveness to him. And so he starts to feel a little bit not at home in this changing body. Right? And as he grows up through the teenage years, right? You know, the teenage years can oftentimes be uh, obsessed with body image. Right? And how you present your body. And so meanwhile, he's in this body that doesn't quite feel right to him in a whole host of ways. Or he's growing up in the teenage years, which is hypersexualized, right? And sexuality is the means through which you enjoy life and you express yourself. And meanwhile, his sexual components don't seem to be something he's particularly enamored with. Or maybe he's growing up in the teen culture, which idolizes the human self and puts the self front and center and all these cultural voices telling you, you need to learn who you are and you need to live authentically yourself and don't live out a lie. And he's saying, I don't know who I am. Right? And on this goes, right? There's this, there's this tension and there's this struggle and there's this alienation in his body. Then there starts to be alienation in his relationships, maybe in the home or with friends. And with that comes, comes all sorts of emotional struggles of, you know, maybe anxiety or depression. Until finally somebody says, hey, you know what? Maybe you're just flat out trying to live something that you're not. You know, maybe there's, maybe there's something not quite right here and you never were a guy to begin with. And maybe you just need to start embracing who you truly are and living as a woman. So maybe he says, well, nothing else seems to be working. Let me try that. Tries experimenting maybe, maybe with a different style of dress and it's something that feels natural, feels more comfortable to him. And so he keep, takes it further, visits medical establishments and talks about options. And then finally says, that's it. I'm going all in on this, changing my name, changing my pronoun, changing my gender, however I can do it. Okay, And then, let's say somebody comes along and says, to him, hey, you know what? Man, I found this wonderful relationship with Jesus Christ, and I'm a part of this great church family. Why don't you come with me sometime and check it out? And this individual says, ah, yeah, about that. So here's what I've learned about Christians. Right? Sexuality, sexual sin especially, is kind of important to them. They elevate that pretty high. They've got a pretty pronounced gender roles, maybe even have contributed to odd gender stereotypes over the years. And not only that, but it seems to me that a lot of the voices that I hear in culture that seem opposed or anti any initiatives that are in support of the LGBT community, whether it's in the broader culture, in the school, a lot of those voices seem to also identify with Christ and Christianity. So yeah, you know, I'm not so sure the church and Christ is for me, or that's a safe place for me to be involved in. I'll just go find some other group that maybe seems a little bit more accepting of me, right? And... Okay, so not only is it difficult, it's going to be a major obstacle for this individual, but it seems like even in the broader culture, as the broader culture, rightfully so, has decided to really come alongside and identify groups that in the past have been marginalized or oppressed or bullied or whatever, while even the broader culture now has no room for any institution, any establishment, any religious perspective that can't embrace, accept, and affirm how any individual chooses to live their life. And so the fundamental question this morning is in that broader cultural mindset, in the mindset of these individuals, like how, how do we as faithful followers of Jesus move into that space? How do we speak faithfully? How do we live faithfully as Christ 
in that whole dynamic, right? And this is part of the whole reason we're asking these questions. We're not just tackling hard topics just for the fun of it, right? We're, we're as I've been saying throughout the summer, one, we want to ask the hard questions so that people can, can know this is a place where you can ask hard questions and you won't be dismissed, you won't just necessarily be judged, but you'll be taken seriously. But then two, uh, it's also how do we faithfully go about our calling as, a, as representatives of Christ who understand clearly the issues, the questions, and move into those questions uh, in ways that are faithful uh, to our Savior who has called us in mission, okay? So that's the goal. And really my whole intention here this morning uh, is to sort of like embed that question, is the church, is Christianity, is the Bible, is Christ anti Transgender, and I want to embed that question in the broader story, narrative of the scriptures. I've read a lot of books um, from both sides of, of this d- debate and perspective, a lot of articles and podcasts, and I want to zero in on something that I don't hear talked about a whole lot, and that's the implications of what plays out here in this third chapter of Genesis. Okay? But just real quick, two caveats before we jump into the text. Jump into the text. Two things that I'm not doing this morning. Uh, transgenderism is an incredibly complex issue, thing that's going on in our culture, and we're not going to speak to it entirely. And again, this isn't even really a sermon about transgenderism. It's a sermon about that particular question. Is the church and is the Bible and is our Christians in Christ anti that community? Um, the other thing that I'm not doing here this morning, uh, I am not addressing this new thing that is happening in our culture where there is sort of this, what they're calling rapid onset transgenderism and gender dysphoria. Transgenderism has uh, traditionally been a long-standing thing that people have endured, wrestled with from childhood on through adulthood. There's this new thing going on, especially in, the, in you know, uh, the teenage culture today, where there's what they're calling rapid onset gender dysphoria, where people just all of a sudden, out of the blue, seemingly, decide, okay, I'm switching genders. Or there's this other thing going on in a culture where just in the culture in general, there's this rejection of the gender binary, as they call it, where people just in general say, I, yeah, yeah, I, I refuse to just believe that there is only these two, male and female. I rather look at it as a spectrum, and there's genders all across. Okay, I'm not going down that road this morning. Those can be topics and sermons in and of themselves. What I'm interested in is the individual who has had this lifelong struggle and wrestle with this gender dysphoria and has felt that very acutely and even very painfully. Mm-hmm. That, that's maybe who I'm speaking to, if I'm speaking to anybody um, in addition to us gathered here this morning. All right, so to do that, let's talk about Genesis 3. And let's try to embed this broader question into the narrative of Genesis 3. Genesis 3, these first three chapters uh, are, are the Bible's uh, story of how life as we know it uh, began. Right? If you know your Bible, Genesis 1 is the story of God creating the material world. And it's an interesting story. Like, if you go through and you read the details of, of the story, like, it's interesting how, you know, the way that story unfolds is that God enters into this chaotic and barren or lifeless world. And the first thing that he does, before he ever creates any life, is that the first thing that he does is he tames that chaos. And he restrains that chaos. And he orders that chaos. He subdues the chaos so that the natural habitats can appear, whether it's the dry land or the sea or the, the heavens 
right? And then only after that chaos is restrained and subdued, then does he flood the place with life. In the last day of creation, well, well, sixth day, he decides to put his image into that creation. He creates men and women somehow endowed with this divine likeness so that they can be his image, his representation inside that creation. Or another way, so that they can be his representative ruling agents in that creation. Right? And God says as much to them. He says, I want you to continue this work that I've begun of subduing my creation, of restraining the chaotic elements uh, in this world, and then filling it with life. Be fruitful and multiply. Okay? Uh, chapter 2, depending on how you look at it, is either another view into the creation drama or it's an expanding of uh, you know some of the aspects of that creation from Genesis 1. And I won't dive into all of chapter 2 other than to say at the very end of it is where God you know says, hey, and enjoy my garden. Not only work in it, cultivate it, subdue it, but enjoy it. All the fruit of the trees of the garden, they're for yours, they're for your enjoyment, except the one. Right, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I want you to leave its fruit alone. In other words, I think God is asking them, I want you to leave to me this business of knowing right and wrong, good and evil. Right, don't seize that for yourself, but trust me with those things and look to me, listen to me, lean on me to lead you in what is good and right versus what is wrong and evil. You know, and part of what I'm doing here is we, when we talk through the stories, I want to highlight places where this biblical narrative or story, it runs starkly counter to the cultural story that we're a part of. And I think here's one perfect example of that. Like I think in a broader culture, they read this story and they read that move there where Jesus, where God says, hey, leave that tree alone. Let me tell you what is good and, and, and right. I feel like a broader culture would say, you know, that's something of a jerk move there, God. You know, you create us, and, and now you're going to come in, and you're going to micromanage the way we think. You can tell us how we ought to believe, and what we ought to believe about this world, and what we're thinking about good. Why can't you just let us decide those things for ourselves? Why can't you let the, us be the arbiters of what is good and what is right for our life now that we have to live? Right? But from the biblical storyline, if you think about that, <laughs> Well, that, that line of argument doesn't make a whole lot of sense. This is God coming in and simply saying, look, this is my world. I've created it. I know how it works. I've designed life. I've flooded it with life. I know what puts that life at risk. And so I'm asking you to trust me, to look to me for the definition of what is good and bad and right and wrong. And not to mention the fact, you're my representative rulers. You're my executive VPs in this business, Okay. Over my creation, which I'm not just handing to you, by the way. I'm not giving up on my creation. I'm asking you to reign over it on my behalf. So you need to look to me. You need to rely on me, trust in me for good, bad, right, and wrong, and all and the sort. Okay? Which brings us into chapter 3, where now the tempter is on the scene. Tempter in the form of the snake. If you haven't grown up in the church... Uh, you probably look at it and say, well, where did that guy come from? <laughs> Who is he? Why is he in the form of a talking snake? And why does he seem to be in a little agitated move where he's a little kind of crafty and sneaky and he's trying to... Okay, <laughs> great questions. Can't dive into all of that here this morning. Other than to say, maybe the simplest way to look at that is here is part of that chaotic element 
creeping, quite literally, back into the garden. Right? Here's that chaotic element which stands opposed to what God is doing and would love nothing more than to plunge the world back into chaos and barrenness. Right? And this person, this snake, this force, knows it has no power over the creator himself, and so he comes for his vice presidents. <laughs> he comes for his representative rulers. And see if I can go at it this way. This should have been a clear instance where Adam and Eve, as the ones called to subdue the chaotic elements of creation, should have either stomped on that snake's head or you know, done what the old Disney cartoons do. Grab that snake, put it in a bow, and fling it as far as you can out of the garden. Right? But they don't do that. There's the first failure. Right? They don't do that. Instead, they let the snakes talk, and they listen. They give an ear to this snake. And what's this whole strategy? Right? This whole strategy is, okay, how do I knock God down a few pedestals, and how do I elevate these, this man and this woman in their own eyes? Right? So he says, yeah, let me tell, let, tell me, did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden here? Right. He says, no, no, of course he, he didn't say that. He said, we can eat of all the trees. You just can't eat of this one tree of the knowledge of Good and evil, because in the day we're going to do that, we'll surely die. <laughs> the snake says, well, yeah, about that, let me tell you. You will not surely die. And in fact, not only will you not die, but you actually get even better. Like when you eat that fruit, you become kind of godlike. And, and the thing is, God knows that. He's trying to keep you down. He's trying to keep his hand on you, trying to keep you oppressed, right? But you take that fruit, you eat that fruit, you become more godlike, you become more fully alive, more fully human than you could possibly imagine, right? Again, he's knocking God down, trying to elevate the consciousness, the dignity, the internal sense of the worth of the individuals. Well, if you've been here a while, you know I'm a, a fan of C.S. Lewis, especially a lot of his fictional writing and... Um, I just think he's brilliant in the way that he often will weave biblical themes into it. And one of the books I love most is, is the book Paralandra. I think I've quoted from it before. Uh, it's, it's part of his science fiction trilogy, his space trilogy, where he plays out this drama between good and evil and other planets and things. In the book Paralandra, uh, he's on this planet called Paralandra, and this whole little scene is, is taking place where the tempter is on the scene. And there's a woman there who's been naively just trusting in the creator and whatever he has for her. And the tempter is there trying to knock her off of that trust. And he's going a whole variety of ways of doing this. And his main strategy is to elevate her own dignity and her own beauty and her own self-worth in her eyes. Right, and so he does this in a couple of different ways. He gives her a nice new dress and says, "Oh, isn't this beautiful? Look how beautiful you are, and whatever." And nothing's quite working until at the very end, he does this. He 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 grabs a mirror and he hands a mirror to to the lady, who then for the first time catches a glimpse of her reflection. And as she has this glimpse of, of reflection, it, it totally captivates her. And there's this conversation that's going on around her, and she's just kind of like phased in and out of it because all she can be fixated on is this reflection of herself. And then C.S. Lewis writes this line in there. He says, um, you know, it was perceived that the affair of the robes and even the mirror had only been superficially concerned with what one might commonly call female vanity. 
He says the image of her beautiful body had been offered to her only as a means to awaken the far more perilous image of her great soul. The external and, as it were, dramatic conception of the self was the enemy's true aim. He was making her mind a theater in which that phantom self should hold the stage. And he had already written the play. Right? That's his point. Like, what's this? The whole aim of the strategy is to move the self front and center. Where maybe the glory of the creator was maybe front and center before. Now it's to bring that down a few notches, elevate the self, and put the self front and center, center stage, so that all of life, all the world, all of creation now evolves, revolves around this self. You know, and so I would say this. Broader culture, whatever you want to say about our broader culture, we are, we are swimming in this temptation. And we've talked about that here a couple times, you know, as we've been working through these questions, right? The, the, the great, the most sacred thing in all of the creation is the human self. And the most fundamental value is human liberty and all human autonomy so that you can be free to live authentically yourself, free of any constraints, free of any binding to any external expectation. Right? The great moral imperative of our culture is that you need to know yourself and you need to live yourself. And the great sin of our culture is that you would live inauthentically or you would live a lie. Right? So you put the self front and center. You understand who the self is. You don't conform that self. You don't submit that self. You don't entrust that self to anything other than who you are and who and what you want of yourself. Well, it's an age-old temptation from the very beginning. Uh, Eve, they buy it, take the fruit, they eat, gives it to Adam, he takes the fruit and eat. And then here's the part where I really want to focus in. Like, like everything just begins to unravel at that point. And the word that, that shows up a few times in the text is this, this word naked. All of a sudden their eyes were open and they realized that they're naked. And, and you know that, that word for naked in, in, the, in, in the Hebrew, I think it's the word harum, don't quote me on that. <laughs> but but that, that word in, throughout the Old Testament, it, mean, it means more than just the absence of clothes. It means to be in a position of vulnerability or exposure or defenselessness, defenselessness or weakness. Right? It's almost as if, okay, they've moved front and center. They put the human self on the stage. They've grasped life by the reins and they're living now on their own terms. And they're front and center. And whoop, the curtain goes up. And now they're just vulnerable and exposed before this watching creation. Well, we were in here setting up yesterday. I was here with uh, George and Jeffrey. I think Amy was here. Bill Batdorf was here. Man, if you ever want your kids to have uh, you know, a fun time, just come over here when Bill Batdorf's here. He'll chase them around, pretend to be a monster. He'll throw balls at them. And yesterday he gave George and Jeffrey, uh, our two little ones, he gave them microphones. And he put them on the stage and he started playing that song, Good God Almighty. And they, they started singing and dancing as if they were doing their thing, right? And they felt fully comfortable and they were having a whole lot of fun. But the thing is, if you brought them up here right now, right, and you gave them that microphone and Bill played the music, Georgia might love it. She might start singing and dancing. But Jeffrey would be would panic, right, I think, and he would be real shy. He would just, like, follow us, right, because 
like to be exposed on the front of stage before all these watching eyes, right? That, that would just be a source of, I think, dread for him. And that's sort of the picture that you have here. They take, they seize life on their own terms, and all of a sudden their eyes are open, and they realize they stand naked, exposed, vulnerable, defenseless, and weak in this creation. You know, and I think our culture is wrestling with this very notion. Like we talked about this as well, too. Like, okay, it might sound good, right, to live life on your own terms, unconformed, unsubmitted to anything else, right, the exaltation of the self. But at the end of the day, to know yourself and to live authentically, that's a crushing burden. It can be. I don't think it's any surprise, and I think it will continue that as the Elevation of the self continues. I think we're going to continue to see what we're already seeing, these rise in just these psychological struggles of depression and anxiety and fear. Anyway, we can talk more about that some other time. We've already talked about it. But we'll come back into the story, right? There's this dreadful nakedness that they experience, and then there's all this alienation that starts to take place. There's this little alienation that takes place between the man and the woman. They decide to cover up and hide from one another. There's going to be some blaming, it goes on later in the story. There's going to be some marital strife, we're told, is going to take place. Uh, there's alienation from their creator, right? They, they cover up, but that's not good enough, so they have to go and run and hide from the creator. There's also alienation, too, from, from the physical world, right? Now Adam, you know, he's going to go out and he's going to work in the garden, and the garden's going to fight back, right? That nice relationship they enjoy with creation, now there's... There's a problem there. Or, or Eve, right? She's going to even feel alienation with her own body, right? As she undertakes, you know, this glorious business of bringing life into the world. It's going to be fraught with pain and struggle. Or, you know, the, the greatest source of alienation is that from dust you were created, and from dust now you're going to return. Now the body is on this trajectory of decay, decomposition, and ultimately death in the dust. Right, And in the Bible, or, or in Christian theology, or biblical theology, we call this the fall. Right, That life, existence, uh, or even just humanity itself, now at this point, has fallen from its intended glory. Right, That the elements of chaos and anti-life and evil have now gained a stronghold in that creation, and, that, and even... Well, in, in these relationships, and even in these bodies, such that now there's a fallenness, there's a brokenness, there's an alienation now, even within the own bodies. You see, you know, if you just read through the next couple chapters, you see all of this intensify. There's en- envy, strife, division, death, running away from God, full steam. In other words, and... and just to put it this way, really from the, the from Genesis chapter 4 onward, the Bible is this unfolding story of how do we get back to what we lost in chapters 1 and 2. Or in other words, the whole rest of the biblical narrative, the whole rest of biblical theology, the whole rest of the Bible story is one of restoration. How do we get back? It's one of redemption. It's one of rescue. Right? Which means that to sign on for Christianity, to commit your life to Christ, to come be a part of the church, means that you recognize, okay, something is not right. Something is fundamentally broken, and I need to be rescued. And I need to be restored. And whatever strategies I've been trying before, it isn't working. 
Or in other words, maybe another way to put this, right, if you are a transgender individual, I certainly hope it would be the case. Well, let me cite this one. Let me back it up first. Here's another stark difference between, I think, the Christian narrative and the broader cultural narrative, where the broader cultural narrative says at every point and every turn to every individual, you are just, you are fine just the way you are. The Christian narrative says, no, you're not fine just the way you are. There's something broken. There's a fallenness. There was an even better thing that we were intended for and that God is aiming at, right? And so to be Christian is to join into this invitation to be restored and to rescue to something even greater. Which gets me to that point, right? If you're a transgender individual, I hope that this would be a place where you are welcome just the way you are. And I hope that this would be a place where you are loved and even embraced just the way you are. But nobody that walks through that door, whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth time, should, will ever hear the terms, you're fine just the way you are. Because that's not what the Christian story is about. The Christian story is a redemption story. It's a restoration story. It's a deliverance story. And so no, nobody walking in that door is fine just the way they are. And so here's the thing, right? If is that does that mean that we are anti-transgender? Well, I think that this, it's going to be subjective how you answer that question. If you ask me, no, that doesn't mean that we're anti, or that means that we're bigoted. It means that we want the best for everybody. We want the life that God originally intended and has come to rescue and to redeem. But maybe to others, that sounds like we're anti who they are and the life they live. Or maybe, maybe if you were a transgender individual, you might say, okay, fine, I hear that. Sounds good. Doesn't sound too bigoted to me. But look, at the end of the day, if you can't not only accept, but affirm who I am and the choices that I make, the decisions that I make, and the lifestyles that I choose to live by, if you can't affirm that and embrace that and get on board with me with that, I'm sorry, that just feels too much anti to me, and I can't be part of that. Okay, and I hear that and I understand that. And maybe the only thing I would say to that here is, okay, fine, but please don't buy the myth that you make your choices, you make your decisions, you choose your lifestyles in a vacuum. Or that you make your choices and your decision as your free, autonomous, independent self. Right? You make those choices in the midst of a culture that is speaking loudly to you. You make that decision in the midst of a culture that is obsessed with body image and spends billions of dollars trying to convince you you need to be obsessed with your body and body image. Or you make that decision in a culture that is hypersexualized and is convinced that expression of your sexuality is the pathway to meaningfulness and do everything you can to convince you of the same. Or you live that and you make those decisions in a culture that idolizes the human self and says you need to live authentically as yourself and the mortal sin is that you would live a lie. Shame on you if you live a lie. You don't make your decisions in a vacuum. You can choose your decisions, you can choose your lifestyles, and you can choose whatever you're going to do with your body or whatever in step with that broader culture. Or what I would encourage you is just give an ear even just for a moment, to the voice of Christ, who says, let me offer you a different way. And you see it a little bit here in this text at the very end when it says, and God made clothing for them to cover their nakedness. 
Adam and Eve tried it. Got those big fig leaves, sewed them all together and covered up with that. And as they're experiencing the consequences of this fallenness and this cursedness and they're about to leave this garden paradise, God says, hold on a second, come back here. <laughs> those dumb fig leaves are never going to work. Let me, let me make some clothing for you. And he gives them animal skins, which is, there's a richness to that. But at the base level, what that shows is this theme that's going to be all throughout the biblical story, that God has this unrelenting and strange compassion and love for these people, for these creatures that he's made. Right, and that compassion and that love is going to weave all the way throughout the story until you come to like the epicenter of the biblical story where God himself decides to come and clothe himself with broken humanity. This fallen creatureliness, he's going to take that, he's going to put it on himself so that ultimately he might wear all of the brokenness and all of the nakedness. Right? He's literally going to be stripped naked on a cross one day and all of the world's hatred and violence and anger and sinfulness is going to be poured on him so that he might wear it all the way into the grave. And he's going to wear it into the grave so that he might crush it, crush all that brokenness, all that fallenness, crushing by coming, walking out of that tomb in victory and in glory so that he might clothe you then in that glory. Right? And that's what happens when we entrust our life to Christ, right? When we give our life to Jesus Christ, he pours his spirit out upon us. And as he pours his spirit out on us and unites us to himself, it's like that old clothing is stripped away and this new radiant garment of Christ and all of its beauty and all of its glory is placed on us. Right, when we were in the book of Revelation, right, that was part of the message to the Laodicean church. You remember that? This church that was all proud and cocky and saying, hey, we are rich. We don't need anything. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, you need to understand you are poor, naked, pitiable, and blind, and I counsel you to buy from me gold so that you might truly be rich. And I counsel you to buy from me white garments to cover the shame of your nakedness. You know, and I guess what we want to say to any individual, like you talk to people who have come to entrust their life to Jesus and have come to enjoy the fruits of that, and they will tell you that that is one of the most freeing things in the world, that we would be clothed with the beauty, the righteousness, the glory of Jesus Christ. One of the most freeing things in the world to know that now that as, as I stand before my Heavenly Father, as I stand before the Holy Creator, I don't come standing in my nakedness and my shame or my brokenness or whatever, but I come standing with the radiant garments of Christ. There's something incredibly freeing about that, right? When I realized that I am clothed in the garments of Christ. I'll put it this way. When I was a kid, a lot of my clothes, uh, they were hand-me-downs from one of my cousins. Uh, so when my grandparents would come visit, they would usually bring a bag, you know, of clothes from one of my cousins. And, and he had cool clothes. I liked his clothes. They were nice. <laughs> and so I was always excited when I saw this new bag of new clothes coming uh, so much so that I didn't care any, anything more about the clothes that were sitting in my closet. I just wanted to get these new cool clothes. Not to mention he was from Philly. So I often got, when I was out in Western Pennsylvania, I often got like Philly shirts or whatever. So it was great. Like I didn't care anymore about my old dirty clothes. I wanted... And I was thinking, I haven't changed a whole lot as I was walking around going over this. I'm realizing I'm wearing one of my brother's pants this morning. So the, 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 the tradition continues. <laughs> uh, what was the point of that? The point is that in that same similar way, right, when you realize and you embrace and you feel that sense that I am clothed in the radiant beauty and the righteousness of Christ as I stand before my... Man, there is something freeing in that that says, I don't need to be obsessed with finding out who I am. 
and finding out what old, you know, clothing I'm going to put on today because I'm, I'm clothed in the radiance of Christ. And the more you grow in your love and your worship and appreciation for Jesus, you want nothing more than to be clothed in him. And you want nothing more than to get rid of your old clothing and just be crowned in the beauty of Christ. Right, And when you realize that this is an expression of his love and his compassion and his devotion for you, man, that frees you from this obsession with living life on my own terms and accomplishing my goals and dreams and expectations and whatever else and frees me to want to know him more and want to live more out his purposes and his plans and his mission and his kingdom in and through my life. Which is all to say, Again, you don't make your choices in a vacuum. There's a culture that speaks loudly to you, spends billions of dollars to get you to think a certain way and to lead you in this direction. And then there's Jesus who has this dying, well, it's really undying love for you, but is expressed to you through his own willingness to lay down his life, to clothe you, to draw you back, to restore you. And you taste that, and there's something wildly freeing. So I say start there. We're sort of out of time this morning. I feel like there's a lot that I would want to say to the church about this issue as well, too. Um, and maybe I'll leave it, I'll leave it at this. Two things. Go for this passage. One, let's make sure we have a robust understanding of the fall when we think about transgenderism and all this stuff. And two, let's make sure that we are committed to living out the wild love of Christ as well, too. Right, so when I say make sure we have a robust understanding of the fall, like make sure we understand that, that all of us live, and this is not to minimize the transgender experience or gender dysphoria, but all of us, this is what the fall means, that all of us now exist sort of in a state of dysphoria from the way that we were intended to be. Okay, right, yeah, we've been renewed in Christ, we've been drawn into Christ, uh, he's clothed us, but yet the, the work isn't done yet. There's still resurrection and new creation yet to come. And in the meantime, there are still this old dysphoric self that we wrestle with and we struggle with, which should keep us humble when we think of other people who are experiencing dysphoria in pretty intense ways. It should also remind us that we are participants, or we can very easily be participants in the underlying dynamics that feed into the transgender experience, whether it is an obsession with body image, or whether it is hypersexualized culture, or whether it is, you know, the elevation, the idolization of the self. To have a robust understanding of the fall means that, yeah, we're kind of participants in that, and we should be far more concerned with our participation in those underlying dynamics and how that plays out in our life than necessarily how we are with how that plays out in the lives of outsiders. And also to have a robust understanding of the fall is to understand well, I'll say it this way, is to understand that, you know, when somebody comes and says, something is not right about my body, okay, we don't just dismiss that out of hand. Because that's what the fall does. The fall creates this alienation with the bodies. And it, it creates, and it puts the bodies in this broken position where now it is on this trajectory towards decay and decomposition and, and death, right? The fall is a breakdown, something not right with the body. And so we listen to that and we are sensitive to that. And we don't just dismiss that out of hand. Uh, dare I even go so far as to say, look, it is just a reality that in a post-fall world, there are individuals who are born into this world with broken bodies such that we know it's factual that there are certain individuals who are born in this world who don't have bodies that are just nice, neatly clean, male or female. 
Someone might have extra chromosomes here. They might have par- extra parts. One of our missionaries, right? They, they had a, uh, a child that was born, it wasn't clearly defined, male or female. Or maybe like if somebody is born into the world and they're missing certain uh, hormones or chemicals that are normally attributed with, with you know, guys and girls, whatever the case. A robust understanding of the fall, we don't dismiss that. When somebody says, something is wrong with my body and it's broken, we're sensitive to that. And a robust understanding of the fall also would lead us to understand, and that must be really painful. You know, when you look at statistics, People who have struggled with lifelong gender dysphoria, it is intensely painful. Uh, you look at the statistics of anxiety, depression. You look at the statistics of attempted suicide among the transgender community. And if there's an ounce of compassion in you, you'll be taken aback by those numbers. It's staggering. And so a robust understanding of the fall says, yeah, there is a lot of brokenness, which produces a lot of pain. And there's underlying messiness that we're even participants in. So we got to be real humble about this. So we have a robust understanding of the fall. And then we have a robust commitment also to the love of Christ. That is willing to sit down with and listen to and talk to and show compassion to those who don't think like us, act like us, look like us, or whatever. Robust love of Christ means that I can hug, love, and embrace those who I don't agree with or whatever. And sure, the love of Christ means that I don't toe that cultural line that says, oh, you're fine just the way you are. No, we don't say that to anybody. The love of Christ means, Trace, it means you say to the other, Christ has something even better for you and trust your life to him and get a part of this great restoration redemption program. Man, there's so much more I'd love to say. We so much more we could talk about. If you have any questions, I'd love to continue the conversation. As all of these questions are, I hope that they just kind of continue the conversation for us. But all of us, wherever we are, make sure we have a humble, robust understanding of the fall and a humble, robust commitment to the beauty of who Christ is and what he offers. And a robust commitment to being vessels of his love and his truth to a world that's caught up in all these cultural currents and needs the freedom that he offers. So may he lead us in that joy and that freedom and he worship and may he lead us in being effective mission agents that communicate that to the surrounding world in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.